take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. I've been preaching through the book of Ephesians and we've made our way to chapter six and I'm on sermon 95. So um, are you laughing with me or at me with that? So I'm not gonna do Martin Lloyd-Jones who was there for I think about four decades it felt like. So um, so thankful for our church that loves the word and has fallen in love with the book of Ephesians. It has been such an incredible, incredible blessing. As you're turning to Ephesians 4, our theme of faithfulness and focus and I would add even a fortitude of being, being committed to the right things in the ministry in the right way is such an appropriate theme, but it also has implications not only for the preacher and the pastor, but also for the congregation. And those go hand in glove. In Galatians 4.19, I know I told you to turn to Ephesians, stay there. In Ephesians 4.19, Paul says something very interesting. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. It's a very odd thing for a man to give an illustration of being pregnant. But he does because there was no other illustration he could choose that was strong enough to say, I am in labor and the giving birth is you being formed into the image of Christ. That's what pastors and deacons and elders long for in our church bodies. It takes a certain aim, certain intentionality. We have a a mission statement at our church. And almost every week we rehearse it. We, we say it together. I think everyone has it memorized. And it's something we, we say we want to do this corporately, but we also want to do this individually. So we exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. In other words, we want the Lord Jesus to be the point of our lives, not a part of our lives, keeping our eye on the ball. Well, if you know much about the book of Ephesians and you are well taught, if you're here in this church and I know that you do, you know that Ephesians basically breaks down into three chapters of heavy doctrine and three chapters of heavy application. However, let me be clear to say, there's a lot of application in the first three chapters and a lot of doctrine in the last three. So don't be so, so simple as to say, well, it's just doctrine, three chapters, then practical, three chapters. No, the, the doctrine always has implications and the implications are always rooted in doctrinal fidelity. Still, after three chapters or half of the book of laying out gospel truth, gospel depth, gospel fidelity, he comes to chapter four, verse one, and says, because of what I've taught you, therefore. Now, Paul's therefores are important. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, exhort you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So in thinking about our theme and a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I was drawn to this passage on the focus. It's a pastoral focus of seeing the image of Christ born in the people that we shepherd. It also is and should be the focus of every congregant, every person in the church to lean into and to focus 
very, very intently, very, very strategically, very, very effortfully into being committed and focused on following the Lord by walking in his way. In 1928, it's hard to believe these words. In 1928, Harry Emerson Fosdick published an essay in Harper's Magazine. This was the title. What's wrong with preaching? Now, a little background, if you don't know that name, he was the self-proclaimed leader of liberalism. He said this, I quote, many preachers indulge habitually in what they call expository sermons. They take a passage from scripture and proceeding on the assumption that the people attending church that morning are deeply concerned about what the passage means spend their half hour or more on historical exposition of the verse or chapter ending with some appended practical application to the auditors. Could any procedure be more surely predestined to dullness and futility? Who seriously supposes that as a matter of fact, one in a hundred of the congregation cares to start with, with what Moses or Isaiah or Paul or John meant in those special verses or came to church deeply concerned about it. Nobody else who talks to the public so assumes, listen to this, that the vital interests of people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago, end quote. A lot of assumptions in that quote, aren't there? (laughs) Fosdick held that you come to church on Sunday mornings with little or no concern for what the Bible says, little or no concern about what the Bible means. He held that you do not care what the authors of the Bible communicated in their writing. He held that it is wrong for me as a preacher, for any of you who are ministers of God's word, it's wrong for you to assume that the congregation cares or believes that their vital interests are contained in a book that's 2,000 years old. He held that studying the Bible says that you're ignorant, uncaring, irrelevant. Yet studying theology, studying doctrine, understanding what God meant by what he said is the means of grace that God has given for us to grow as believers. Jesus loves me. This I know. How? Because the Bible told me so. It tells me so. This is the halfway point in Paul's exposition to the Ephesians. For three chapters, he's taught what God has done for us in the gospel. And then in the next three chapters, by the way, he's going to explain what what it means to apply that. And just, if I may, this is what you learn beginning in chapter four and following. Character of our inner hearts matters. We have unity with other believers. You live a distinctively different life than an unbeliever, as well as growing as a believer. You pursue doctrinal depth and understanding. We're to employ our spiritual gifts, understand how to communicate better, as well as use communication to resolve conflict. We are to apply the scriptures by the doctrine that he's taught by 
how we use our language for others' benefits, how we're kind and forgiving and imitating God and loving others and fighting internal and external sins, how we become spiritually stable, how to walk with the Spirit of God, how to sing with an encouraged heart, how to become a more faithful spouse, how to become a more faithful parent to your children, how to become a more faithful child to your parents, how to be better as a boss and better as an employee, how to better and more appropriately fight the devil. Doctrine matters. Let me say what I said a minute ago. But doctrine that doesn't find its way into our lives is just trivial pursuit. But trying to live Christianity without doctrinal foundations is just behavior modification, and you run out of gas pretty fast. Paul understood that, which is why this this book is welded together with the verse that we're going to look at tonight, Ephesians 4.1. I mean, every, you know, preachers are prone to be evangelistic, right? Just kind of exaggerate something here or there. And I found that's true in my case. This is the most, this is the best. And, you know, it's like a, Spurgeon said, I come to Saturday night and I want to preach and every verse raises its hand and says, pick me, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm the best. So... I feel that way sometimes, but I want to say without any qualification that the verse we're looking at this evening might qualify, it just might qualify as the most succinct summary of the Christian's life in the New Testament. So if you want an outline, I'm going to give you two expectations for living a consequent Christian life. Two expectations for living a consequent Christian life. That word consequent is very important. It comes directly out of the verse, as I'll show you in a moment. Two expectations for living a consequent Christian life or a focused and keeping with our, th- our, our theme, Christian life. Number one, it's in the first part of verse one, a life that responds to exhortation. It's a life that responds to exhortation. This is a strange thing to say, but obedient Christians live in the shadow of being told what to do every day, all day, by our Lord. Therefore, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Stop right there. First word in the last half of this book is the little Greek word, un. We translate it, therefore. Very interesting word and a powerful word at that. It means, consequently, this is out of my Greek dictionary, Un expresses consequence or simple sequence. Consequently, we're living consequent Christian lives because of what we know in the first three chapters. Paul uses the exact same word in the Greek, un, in Romans 12, 1. Therefore, un, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And I've heard, I know you've heard it many times taught that the first 11 chapters of Romans are those mercies. Therefore, therefore, present yourself to God. It's a consequence. So after three chapters of discussing, describing theology, doctrine, the unity of believers, the depth of the gospel, our deadness in sin and our amazing gift that God gave us in grace being made alive together with Christ. Paul opens 
a door to application in a unique and special way in chapter 4, verse 1. In other words, Paul tells the Ephesians that now they are to do something because they know something. That's a simple equation for Christian growth. We know in order to do, we do because we know. That's why when you come to church, you hear your pastor give an exposition, give a, a teaching, a sermon, not a pep rally. I like the way Kent Hughes describes this shift from theology to practice. He, he's so poetic in the way he says this. He says, the shift can be expressed in many ways, from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from a Christian's wealth to a Christian's walk, from exposition to exhortation, to the, from the indicative to the imperative, and from high society to a high life. That's just unfair to be able to write like that. So well said. Why is this important? I think it's interesting that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his exceptional and magisterial volume, long commentary on Ephesians, identifies two classes of people who, who need to stand at the precipice of chapter four, verse one, and think. He says this, some people are naturally intellectual. They've been given minds by God above average, perhaps, and, and they enjoy reading and studying and reasoning and handling truths and doctrines. Their particular danger is to spend all of their time with doctrine and to stop at doctrine, what they know. There's another whose danger is to stop with the experience only. These folks are always looking for a better set of feelings and experiences, and they don't see the value of spending time studying the theology behind their belief system of Christianity, end quote. I think he's right. I mean, there are, categorically, there are some who would love the first three chapters of Ephesians more than the last three, and some who would love the last half more than the first half. I think verse one of chapter four says, no, you have to link them together. It's a therefore, because of what God has done, because of what we know about God, therefore, there's a consequence. Just a little footnote, by the way, Paul identifies himself really interestingly here. He says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. He's riding from house arrest in Rome. He reminds the readers that he's been stripped of all of his freedoms, but not of his ability or his willingness to be faithful to Christ. Very important lesson there. We live in a country where many believers turn the volume up on freedom, freedom, freedom. And yet Paul's message here is that his loss of civic freedom, of all of his freedoms, had nothing to do with his walk with Christ. It did nothing to hinder him from his commitment to Christ and his faithfulness to ministry. God arrests me, I'll evangelize the, the jailer. You could not defeat his focus and his faithfulness to ministry. Even further, the language of Paul that he uses, that he employs here in all of his letters is that he's, the prisoner not of Rome, what does he say? Prisoner of the Lord. 
He saw his incarceration as under the sovereign providence and intention of God. He had willing submission to be incarcerated because he was free in Christ and it didn't stop his ministry. He never argued for civil liberty and freedom as a citizen. He said, this is where God has me. I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. As I'm sure you've noted in many studies, Paul had developed a spiritual maturity to see through the trials of his life to find the providence of God at work. Oh, what a lesson there is, there, isn't there? I don't know about you, but do you find... Do you find that you oftentimes spend time and effort and prayer trying to get out of trials that God probably puts you into to grow you, to teach you, to change you? Oh, that doesn't mean we don't pray. If, if I'm laying in the hospital, please, please pray for me. If I'm having a trial, please pray for me. But We have to rearrange our thinking on bad. How come? God causes how many things? All things to work together for bad, good. All things to work together for good. Paul could have said that sitting in prison. This is for my good. This is for God's glory. This is for the good of the people to whom he was writing here in Ephesus. Now, don't miss the little um, challenge he says here. I implore you. You know this word implore, whether you might recognize it or not. I'm sure you've taught this, pastors. I'm sure you've been taught this if you're a congregant here. It's the word parakaleo. It's the same word that's translated for the Holy Spirit, the helper, or what, the, what God gives us. He comes alongside, calls alongside us. It means to beseech, to come alongside. This is not a suggestion. It's a command that's accompanied by pastoral care, pastoral instruction, and even pastoral identification. It's it's easy for us to say, well, we should probably listen to you, Paul, because you're obeying the Lord in prison. I implore you, I parakaleo you, I come alongside to challenge you. By the way, that parakaleo is such an interesting word because it's used in two different ways in both Greek literature and in the New Testament where it means sometimes to call alongside is to encourage and sometimes it's to admonish. Sometimes, and I remember I used to run track in high school. Sometimes I would be coming around and ran the, the, the two mile. And so I, eight laps, come around and a coach would be really encouraged. Yeah, it's great. You're doing good. Catch that guy. It's all encouraging. And the next lap he's saying, you better not let that guy catch you. Both of those are coming alongside and helping me and encouraging me to do what I needed to do. And if you've uh, been around God's word very long, you know that the Holy Spirit comes alongside in both of those dimensions, doesn't he? So do you expect, it's a number one, a life that responds to exhortation. Do you, um, do you have an expectation that God intends to tell you what you must do and need to do and ought to do to be a focused, faithful follower. Brings us to really the heart of the passage. 
Number two, a life that corresponds to doctrine. A life that corresponds to doctrine. Two expectations for living a consequent Christian life. Number one, a life that responds to exhortation. Number two, a life that corresponds to doctrine. It responds to exhortation. If God said it, I want to honor it. Now it it corresponds to doctrine. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says in this verse, if we but knew what these words mean, most of our problems would immediately be solved. Wow. Walk. Paul's going to come back to this idea of walking later in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. What does this mean? It's an interesting word, walk. It's an interesting verb, interesting, interesting command. Walk means to live. In fact, if you see the word walk in the New Testament and even in the Old, it, mean, it means live. You can make it a, a, a metaphor for substitute the word live and you'll have the right meaning. Live in a manner, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And it makes sense because that was the way they got around. Um, I, I was in Israel just earlier this year with a group from our church, and I was reminded again that when Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about the new heavens and new earth where the valleys will be raised and the mountains will be dropped, that's a very attractive thing if you have to get everywhere by walking in Israel because there's not a flat place in the whole land. They walked. It's get around. So live, walk. Then he says, in a manner worthy of the Lord. Worthy, interesting word, axios. It means equal weight. And the point is that one's calling and one's conduct ought to be in balance. Equal weight on the scale. It was also used of color matching. When I got married, I learned a lot of things. One of the first things I learned was that my sense of what matched didn't match what my wife said matched. Um, And you you know this. I mean, so oftentimes God in the scriptures, Jesus did this often in his teaching. uh, Specifically, I'm thinking of a passage in Lamentations where there are questions that are asked that are not really questions, they're statements. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass in Lamentations 3, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Lord that both good and ill go forth? Those are not questions. Those are statements. So when my wife says to me, are you going to wear that shirt with those pants? That's not a question. That's a statement. You need to change, Rick. It's out of balance. They don't match. That's the word that's used here. Walk in a manner that matches, that's commensurate, that that has balance, that, that has meaning. It matches doctrine. Your life and doctrine have a coordination. We all have moments that we'll never forget. When I was in high school, it was just before I was truly converted. Now, I grew up going to church. I, I went to church every Sunday because that's where the cute girls were, and that was the, the cool thing to do. And I wasn't 
truly redeemed, but I was a very faithful churchgoer and I was working at McDonald's, working the fry station. This one girl, as we were closing, I was cleaning the fry station rather, and she was cleaning part of the counter and she was a cute girl. And so I asked her, hey, you want to go grab a Coke sometimes? That was before you went and had coffee. That's kind of a new thing. So you want to grab a Coke sometimes? And uh, she says, are you asking me out on a date? I said, kind of, yeah. What's the right answer to this question? Yes, I am. She goes, well, Ricky, I like you, but I can't go out on a date with you because I only, I only go out with, with Christians, with believers. And it's obvious being around you that you don't know the Lord. And I remember saying, yes, I do. I go to church. And she pushed back and said, I'm sorry, Rick. You, there's nothing about your life that reminds me of Christianity. It was the next year that I came to faith in Christ. I was thankful for her. You know what she saw? What you say you believe is doctrine and what you live in your life, incongruent. They don't match. How's the congruency, the balance, the axios between your doctrine, what you say you believe, and your life. That's what Paul is raising here. When we put on our clothes, we're usually mindful of color combinations that we are arranging. When we put on our doctrine, we ought to understand it should have a balanced impact and difference, make a difference in our life. There should never be a clash, in other words, between our confession of faith and our practice of living. 1 John says, so penetrating. By this, we know that we have come to know him. First John 2, 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him. Whatever he says next is gonna be pretty important, right? This is how you know if you're a Christian. By this, we know we've come to know him. Conditional clause, if we keep his commandments. And he goes on. The one who says, I've come to know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk, live in the same manner as he did. Pretty obvious. Balanced life with our doctrine in equilibrium with our living. Not perfectly. That's called heaven. He's calling us as believers to live a life worthy of our calling, our, which is the meaning of our salvation. God's calling us. Colossians 1.10, Paul wrote that we are to live a life worthy of the Lord himself. In other words, in balance with the Lord himself. And again, this may qualify as the most succinct summary of Christian living in the New Testament. It's a pretty good summary of all we're called to do and be. Believers are expected to live under the lordship of King Jesus, our Lord and master. Now, let's take a step back here for a second have a consideration that I think the scriptures would call us to consider. As I said, the primary means of transportation during the Bible time was walking. It became a metaphor for not only navigating the physical world, but also navigating the spiritual world as well to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Listen to these familiar terms. We're gonna have, an, we've had a wonderful little Bible study this morning. We're gonna have another one right now. Genesis 5, 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, 
for God took him. Deuteronomy 5.3, you shall walk in all, in the, all the way the Lord your God commands you so that you may live that it may be well with you. You may prolong your days in the land which you possess. Deuteronomy 10.12, very familiar words. Now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul? Psalm 15.2, he who walks in integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth is the one the Lord regards. Proverbs 28.18, he who walks blamelessly will be delivered but he who is crooked will fall at once. How about 2 Corinthians 5, 7? For we walk by faith, not by sight, right? Ephesians 2, 2. He talks about our former lives as unbelievers in which you formerly walked, lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Get the idea? But there's something else that's very interesting when you look at the metaphor of walking in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in all of God's word, and that is, that God also highlights that as you walk, there's the possibility and the danger of stumbling, tripping. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brethren, be of all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You know what he's saying? As long as you practice these things, if you're living is axios, is in balance with your doctrine, you won't stumble. Psalm 119, verses, verse 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Psalm, Proverbs 3, 23, then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble when you're pursuing wisdom. Isaiah 3, 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. Hosea 14, 1, O Israel, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The Lord Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right eye makes you what? Stumble. Tear it out. Throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to throw into hell. He says it again. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it far from you. Same thing. You know what's interesting about that? We know it's an illustration and we know it's a metaphor that he doesn't mean literally because if your right eye makes you stumble and you pluck it out, don't you think that would make the right eye ineffective? He says, then pick it up and throw it from you. If your right hand makes you, I hope you're left-handed. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and pick it up and throw it far from you. The point is go to extremes if something makes you stumble to excise it from your life. John 11.10, if anyone walks in the night, 
He stumbles, said the Lord, because the light is not in him. John 16, 1, these things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. 1 Corinthians 8, 13, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. So I won't cause my brother to stumble. James 3, 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And you know it well. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So walk with the Lord, walk in his ways, walk in his statues, walk uprightly, live in that present tense love for the Lord and his word. Walk, 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 so you don't stumble. And if you don't walk in his way, you will stumble. But there's one more word. If you're walking and you trip and stumble, there's the danger of falling. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he, what? Fall. 1 Timothy 4, 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Second Peter 3, 17. Therefore, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So it's important, as Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, walk in a manner worthy of his calling, walk in a manner that pleases Christ, that is in sync with and balanced with doctrine, that we understand that if we don't walk in that way, we have the danger of stumbling. And if we end up stumbling, we have the danger of falling. I hope you get the picture the Holy Spirit is painting. It's his desire that we walk with the Lord in such a way that we do not stumble and never fall. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That's the effectual calling that God gives every believer who hears the gospel and responds. With which you have been called. Refers to God's call and salvation. As always in the epistles, it's that beautiful, wonderful call of the Lord. Second Timothy 1.9, who has saved us, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Second Thessalonians 1.11, to this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling in balance with same word with your calling. Also to the Thessalonians, Paul put forth this idea of walking worthy. Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians 2.11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who also calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the question of focus that really this raises for us as shepherds, as pastors, as leaders is first of all, are we in labor until our people are walking in a manner worthy 
of the Lord? Do we feel those, those anxious moments of, I can't wait till you grow. I want you to grow. Looking forward to that birth. Does your life reflect an obvious, deliberate, and noticeable connection between what you believe and how you live? I pray that no one ever has that, that experience that I had when I was 15 years old where that girl said nothing about your life. I thought I was a Christian. I went to church. Nothing about your life reminds me of Christianity. She was right. Because the next year when I did give my life to the Lord, everything changed. Is your life in balance with your doctrine and practice? Are you studying doctrine? Doctrine matters. This is part of that admonition that Paul gives to the Ephesian church where he says, don't, don't, don't be the, the people who come to have their ears tickled. Your little pleasantries. I um, was talking to some, some brothers today and we were talking about the book of Romans. Uh, we taught, I taught through the book of Romans at our church. It took five years. And um, the day I finished Romans and I drove out of the church parking lot, I got down to a red light just by the, the church and I started, started weeping because Romans was over. And I wanted so bad to start over at verse one, chapter one, the next week. Doctrine matters. Do you study doctrine and care about Doctrine. Are you are you reading so that you know? Are you are you interested? Do you take notes? Do you read books about the Bible? Do, 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 do you want to be more theologically astute, educated, equipped? And if you do, is there balance between your doctrine and your practice? One of the saddest things that our church has experienced happened several years ago where there was a, a man who knew as much doctrine as anyone I've ever met. He could recite confessions and catechisms. He had scripture memorized. He had read more books than I probably possess. But he was a proud man. He lost his family. He lost his friends because he was the only one who was right about anything and everything. His doctrine was not in balance with his life. You know what the, just on a real practical level, the most uh, observable reflex to Christian maturity is? Let me ask you another question. It's asked to me on a flight over to Australia by a man who was so wise. He would always take the moments to talk to me about the Lord. He was going over on a missions trip and he was with me. He was an older man who's with the Lord now. And he said, Rick, answer this question. You're never more like Christ than when you are. And I, I said, loving God is love. Nope. Kind, gentle, peace, patience, kindness, gentle. I, went, I mean, I, I tried everything. Nope, 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 nope. Name is Fred Barshaw. And uh, Peter, you probably know Fred, knew Fred. 
And Fred said, I mean, I exhausted every Christian virtue I knew. And he said, nope, 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 nope. And I was getting a little frustrated. And I said, well, you answer it, Fred. You're never more like Christ than when you're what? And he said, humble. Where'd you get that? Philippians 2. When it came time for Christ, for God in flesh to present himself to the world, he humbled himself. Doctrine makes us humble. Doctrine makes us want others' needs met, others' good presented even more than our own. Are we walking worthy? Are we shepherding people to walk worthy? Should be our natural response. Just a quick, maybe surprising illustration. It was a surprise to me when I learned this. Living in a way where the life of God has consequence in our own life is taught throughout the whole scriptures, but in a strange place that you might not recognize at first. I think Ephesians 4.1 has an Old Testament twin sister. And it's the third commandment. Moses says in Exodus 20 verse 7, quoting the Lord, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, I, if you were like me, you were taught growing up, the, well, that's cussing and cursing. And that certainly is a part of that. That's to take his name. But think about this. The word take is the word nasa. It literally means the word wear. You wear it. You, you carry it. Do not wear the name of the Lord in a vain way. In other words, don't say you belong to the Lord and not live like it. That's the third commandment. We are to carry the name of the Lord. We are to carry his reputation in a demonstrable, meaningful axios, balanced way with our doctrine. Philippians 1.7, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy and balanced of the gospel of Christ. Last year, I, look, I'm a, I am a uh, hopeless college football fan. I grew up in Tennessee, and I, my blood is orange. I love the Tennessee Volunteers and uh, have. I, I've, I've become more sanctified the older I get watching them play, and they are a sanctifying influence in my life. I can say that as well. Last year, I remember there was a game in which, um, uh, it was two years ago, actually, that they, um, they lost in a the refs weren't, weren't really fair to us. Let's just say it that way. Um, they're never fair to us, but that's for another time. Um, anyway, they, they lost the game and it was frustrating. I'm watching the television and a horrific scene unfolded. The fans were throwing stuff on the field, throwing things at the opposite players, throwing golf balls at the opposite coach. And I remember watching that as a Tennessee fan in horror, in shock, and in utter embarrassment. Why? Because they didn't represent the team that I love. Do we represent the Savior that we love? We say how we act, how we interact, how we forgive, 
how we grant grace. Are you walking in a manner in balance with the doctrine that you believe? Worthy of the Lord and his calling and the gospel that you know and hold precious. That's a focus pastorally that we have for our sheep. That's a, past, that's a focus that the sheep, all of us, ought to have for ourselves, right? I, I can't resist sneaking into the next verse. So you're going to walk in a manner of the Lord, and if we had another session tonight, we would go on to verse 2, with all, what's the word? <laughs> Humility, gentleness, patience, showing forbearance, showing tolerance for one another, being diligent to present the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A little footnote to that. Paul is saying the first and primary place and way that your doctrine makes itself known is with other believers in the body, preserving the unity, caring for them, showing humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance for one another. That's a Bible term for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, we do that to the unbelievers to be attractive for the gospel, but it shows up first in the pews. It shows up first in our churches. Can I sneak in? No, I won't do it. I'm just kidding. We can sneak into verse four, then verse five, and then do the whole the rest of the three chapters tonight if you want to stay. If you, it would take us a while, so we won't do that. Let me just ask you. Let me encourage you. Is there an obvious, consequent, observable, demonstrable connection between what you believe and how you live? That is a pretty good summary of Christianity. Let me pray. Father, we want to be the right representatives of you and for you. We want to wear your name faithfully and not in a vain way, obeying that third commandment, listening to Paul where we can have balance, equilibrium, consequence between our doctrine and our living and our life and our doctrine. So give us all a hunger and a thirst for wanting to know more so that we can obey more. Please encourage us that our obedience has to be rooted in what we believe and what we know so that Christ is glorified, so that we find peace and rest so that our circumstances are always understood in your providence. Paul, the prisoner of the Lord. Whatever circumstance we find ourselves in tonight, Father, show us your will and your way on how we can be faithful and focused and obedient, walking worthy of our calling. Pray these things in Jesus' name.